Welcome to OpenHive.js, the podcast for all things JavaScript. We are your hosts, Matteo Collina and James Snell. We as open source developers feel the pain of having to rely on centralized solutions more than big companies do, and more than users who don't really care about where their data lives. Welcome back for part two of our conversation with Michael Rogers, IPLD lead at Protocol Labs and Node and JavaScript thought leader. In this episode, our chat with Michael continues with a look at the open source model, decentralized databases and ESM. If you haven't already, check out part one to see where the conversation began. say now we're using a decentralized database, the entire application stack between the database and the application, all the GraphQL, all the REST services, everything that people are used to and how they build applications, all that has to get replaced. That's a lot of code to write. Like We've got a lot of work to do. Let's get into it. This is OpenHive.js from Nearfit. It's it's sitting here talking, I just keep going back to how similar at least the high-level concepts are to the original arguments for semantic web and linked data, you know, know, W3C. It it, it all goes back to the same fundamental idea of a core set of uh, of primitives, uh, you know, in the semantic web case, the URL, right? it doesn't really matter where these things are, are are actually stored, where they're at. We can still get get at them in a in a consistent way. Um, so it's 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 interesting that you know we've come largely full circle <laughs> back, and and yet again, you know, you know, Tim is right. Was like, right. You know, this is this is what they go. Yeah, I mean, so so Tim Tim was right. And then no 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 sorry sorry folks let me intervene here. Team was absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah. right, and then the I mean, implementation so... was not okay. About the problem. Absolutely wrong. Yeah. Yeah yeah. So Tim diagnosed the problem. I, I, like Tim diagnosed this problem. I think around the time that I started programming, like he started talking about this like in the '90s, right? He was saying like the the big thing that we missed in the web was the data layer. Like there's no data layer. <laughs> um, like we need to figure that out because the way that everybody is now building their data layer is to centralize it in a database off of the web. So like, let's figure that out. Um, I think that like the, the solution that he came to was the solution that you would come to if you invented the yeah. Earl too. Like, that, like if you invented like literally the most important thing ever, <laughs> You would be like, hey, that's probably the right solution to this next problem. <laughs> um, but the the issue with um, with using an URL for the data layer of the web goes beyond just a kind of centralization decentralization. Um, it's not a stable enough primitive um, because it it can mutate, right? So you you don't have assurances about it, and so you can't actually build the data structures that you would build a database on top of the semantic web stack. Instead, what you end up doing is you end up using centralized databases, literally using like graph databases, and then serializing two semantic web protocols. So the same way that you're publishing a human readable version of the web, you are publishing this machine readable version of the web that is the serialization of the database. Um, And I think that like that, that doesn't get us out of the bag of billionaire problem for one. 
Um, like it doesn't actually kind of break apart the, the centralization of the data itself. It just gives us a decentralized like access to it in a way. Um, but also like, I just don't think that there is a clear incentive to build a human readable version of your website. And so you will take the thing that is in the database and turn it into a website because like, that's what people will see. There's an incentive there. The incentives for, for building out that data layer are a lot harder to quantify. Um, it's, it's a lot harder to see the value that people get out of it. And you can kind of see this in like the rise of and fall of like APIs that, that big services were doing, right? Where it became very in vogue for everything to have a REST interface. And when a lot of new companies were starting, everyone had to have an API because that was how you tied all these services together and how you built additional value and how these different services were going to take off. But once enough of them had done really well, they started to really lock down those APIs and remove that functionality because they didn't actually want this network of services. They wanted more people pulled into their ecosystem that they kind of could derive value from. And so if you want to avoid that problem, you actually have to you have to attack the value generation itself. You have to go like, where is the value being created? And that's in the relationships. And then you have to break that apart. And it, like the, th the thing that I keep coming back to is that like, I think that once we have the right tools, once we have like things that open source developers and web developers can just grab and build applications this way, I think this is actually like a way easier battle to win than we think that it is. I think it's really easy actually to dislodge a Facebook and a Twitter um, and all of these services. I think that they're actually very, very weak um, because they are a silo of value generation that is going to have to compete with a network of value generation. Once you have a network of value generation, it's just over. Like now all new applications are being built on that network. Um, because why wouldn't you, right? Like, so, so here's a really good example. If I had, if there was um, like a decentralized data structure for tweets and tweet feeds, and there was a system already that people were using to kind of look at those tweet feeds. If I wrote any new audio application for podcasting, something that it would do would be to publish into that network. <laughs> something that it would do would be to read out of that network to figure out what I want to listen to, right? Like there's just no, like, why wouldn't you, right? Like there, you, you get to write a new application and then basically bootstrap on top of all this value that's already being generated in this network. You want to be a participant of the network because there's so much more value there. And then as your application becomes valuable itself and creates all this new content, it is then leveraged by the network going forward. And so I really think that like th these are very easy problems to solve once we do the actual hard part, which is writing all the code and the tools for developers to be able to write applications this way, which we, which we, I will be fully honest, we do not have. Like a lot of people that are really into decentralized applications have this very um, like condescending attitude towards web developers where, why aren't you writing things this way? Why aren't you already writing D apps? Why isn't everything D apps? And it's like, because there's like four D apps and this is like not an app, this is not an application model that is highly accessible to web developers yet. We are still figuring out what the best way to write these are. Um, and like, you know, I'm involved in that and I'm invested in it, but like we, we have work to now, do. Now, is the bootstrapping <laughs> problem there that tools uh, and, and, you know, the inability to, for developers to easily create that? Or is it the, the current lack of users to motivate developers to go off and, 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 and build things? I, I think it's, it's, it's mostly developers. I really do. Um, like, 
the average so like if a, if a web if an open source project gets to a point where or I should say a JavaScript project. The average JavaScript project that gets to a point where they want like a website and they're not just a GitHub repo, that website usually has a better than average design. Like the user facing portion of that is better than average. If you look at the average enterprise application or just the average like application being built, like it's pretty clunky and it's just kind of grabbing a bunch of existing toolkit widgets and shoving them together. It, you know, we, we have this view that um, these user problems are like really difficult to solve and that's why we need these big companies that have these big focused user departments that are really thinking about the user experience. But when you really break it down, the number of companies that have user experience departments like that are really few and far between. Like, yes, the biggest applications have them, um, but there's, there's no reason to think that one, you wouldn't attract that kind of talent and those kinds of people in an open source project. Like I've seen people like that flock to these kinds of projects, like they actually are attracted to them. Um, if you structure an open, I mean, I've done, as you know, like a lot of governance work and a lot of thinking about like how an open source project can attract people at different ends of the talent spectrum, other than just, you know, the, the core competency of working on this code base. Um, and once you open the door to those people, they show up. Um, I, I think that the open source model of building applications is just a fundamentally better right. model. And the things that it is not currently good at have nothing to do with the model not being a good fit. It has to do with like our lack of maturity around tools and primitives for open source development to take on those mm -hmm. kinds of problems. Um, I, I don't think that there's some, some kind of critical bit that open source is missing where it can address user right. concerns. Yeah, yeah, I, think, you know, I see success of projects like Signal. Um, uh, you know, Signal you know, Communicator you know, is, is being an example of that where you know, it can be done in a decentralized model where you don't have the centralized data storage and user profiles and all this kind of stuff, but it still just works. And, you know, and, and then I look at over at things like the situation with what's happening with TikTok right now, right? With, you know, the U.S. government threatening to, you know, mm -hmm. to, to shut them down and kind of force stuff. And it would be really interesting for, you know, to see developers go off and, like, take a look at TikTok, take a look at Signals, you know, and, and, and say, you know what? Maybe we can do something in a completely decentralized way that has encryption that does have a really good user experience as well, right? It just works the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm excited to see that kind of uh, stuff really start to take off, but the challenge has always been that that how do you how do you give users something that works really well, <laughs> right, and meets these mm -hmm. concerns? Mm -hmm. right. Yep. I mean, I think like my my goal, like the state that I'm trying to get, like the maturity that I'm trying to get this technology to. Is is not to the point where like everyone is, is a decentralized node on the internet. Like that's a that's a that's like a 10, 20 year goal for me. Um, my my shorter term goal is just getting to the point where an open source project can build a user facing application that is like the scale of TikTok or Twitter, and it is ostensibly in GitHub Pages, where it is like a static website where all the application code is being produced that way. It's an open source project, everybody contributes. And when you log in, you connect a data provider to that. And that's where the actual data storage goes. And that's like not that hard of a, a place to get to. Like it's it's actually just not as difficult as, as we think. Michael, like most of the time that I'm mm -hmm. spending these days when we're doing like some, some coding work mm -hmm. is mostly related on uh, solving the head of line uh, blocking problem in uh, in applications, drivers, and so on. 
So the future you are describing seems mm -hmm. like so far ahead than what I'm working on normally <laughs> that it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it looks a little bit futuristic. I don't know. It's, um, uh, I would love to not have that problem, but still, we are still faced, like most developers these days, most applications are still built around the concept of connection pools, uh, head-of-line blocking, and a mm -hmm. lot of those mm -hmm. pipelining, whatever. And a lot of those those big yeah. problems. So I don't know it. Yeah, you know we 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 we've bottlenecked on our, our on our centralized infrastructure. Uh, you know to the point where you know we spend mm -hmm. most of our time just trying to solve the one problem we created for ourselves. Um, you know, you, you, you tell you, your point there about it being so futuristic. You know, I just I, I have to laugh at it because you know going back to the point about you know Tim earlier, this is the problem that was identified like twenty years ago, thirty years. <laughs> So it's yeah. it's both a you know a historical problem and a future problem, and we haven't quite got there yet. So so look at a primitive level, I I I think I did already kind of solve this problem to be honest with you. Like I really do think that we have the solution to this, and it's not we don't have the tools on top of it to yeah. get where we need to go. Like you know I I have the primitives to build something like MySQL or MongoDB in a decentralized way with decentralized providers, um, and. And because of the way that those primitives work, the problem that you're talking about is kind of already solved at the primitive layer, right? So when you build with these, with these content address structures, so, so imagine a, a B tree that you build for your database. Um, and all of, those, all of those pointers that you know, used to be in like a page file format that pointed at different sectors of the disk, instead those pointed at these CIDs, right? Like these hash-based these hash addresses. Um, that means that all of the blocks in the database are not in like this linear storage structure on disk, but they're just in a key value store and literally in any key value store anywhere. So I have a local offline cache that's a key value store. I have, you know, you can, I, I could talk to Cloudflare and Cloudflare could be fronting like, you know, with, with just an HTTP based key value store where I'm asking for these addresses. Um, and then eventually I can ask for these addresses out of other centralized providers or out of the centralized network. So the database just turns everything into blocks, and then we get those blocks out of the key value store. And now you're just talking about, okay, what is the most efficient way to parse this graph and figure out what blocks that I don't have and ask people for them? And that's not that hard. Like we, I mean, I, I already have like implementations of like three or four different approaches based on kind of what your graph looks like. You know, in, in the Filecoin blockchain right now, there is a protocol called GraphSync that is used for retrievals where we have like a selector-based syntax for getting all of these like, so if you have a point-to-point -point protocol and you know what the graph looks like, then you can pull it that way. DagDB has a, has a very different approach because there's a huge amount of deduplication across the graphs. So what it, what it holds onto is like an indexing structure overall the blocks that it has so that it can very quickly without parsing the whole graph, figure out what are all the pieces that I'm missing so that I can ask a provider for them. Um, and so now the protocols for getting the blocks and handling all these, these head of line is like those get really easy. We can, and we can do really cool optimizations to those. And because these are all hash base key values pairs that you're, that you're asking for doing things like, like you just have LRUs everywhere, right? Like you, you have an LRU literally in memory in the client. You have an LRU, like you have a local offline cache that, that effectively functions as an LRU um, if you want to just expire things in it. You can talk to any CDM provider. Edge becomes very, very easy in this model because every Edge node now just has all these key value pairs. And all of the 
parts of a data structure that you're accessing all the time are always going to be in the local LRU. <laughs> and when you update the structure, you're only updating the pieces that changed, and all of the parts of the entire graph and the entire tree structure that have not changed are the same and are still in the same cache at every edge node, at offline cache, at everywhere. Um, so that's like, that's, I mean, to me, that's the thing that we get for free. <laughs> um, that's not the hard problem to solve. Like once we use these primitives, like that problem goes away almost for free. And now we, we have to move on to, okay, now we have to write like, like replacing all databases ever is a, is a really big challenge. <laughs> like that's a big enough problem for us to get our heads around. Um, I think that this issue is, is fairly easy. Re literally never using a centralized database again it tears apart the whole stack. Like we really can't underestimate how big of a deal this is. It's not just that I lose MongoDB and I lose MySQL. I lose like whatever my favorite database is. It's literally the fact that the way that I build an application now is that I do a REST service request or like a GraphQL request or some kind of, some kind of transactional request. And when I say write data and that returns to me, there is a guarantee, a write guarantee that literally like you can trace all the way to an F-sync call on disk for a B3 structure in that centralized database. Like how we handle transactional integrity of applications boils down to the implementation of centralized databases. And so when you, when you change that, when you say now we're using a decentralized database, the entire application stack between the database and the application, all the GraphQL, all the REST services, everything that people are used to and how they build applications, all that has to get replaced. And that's a huge, that's a lot of code to write. Like we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> it's a big enough problem. And if you want to think like, hey, this is out far in the future, like that's the reason why it's far. Yeah, it's, you know, I don't think we can, I don't think we can overstate um, how, how difficult that is going to be. And if we start taking, you know, and then if beyond that, we start taking a look at the code itself, right? Not just the data that you're moving around, but the code that's operating on that. <laughs> And we start trying to apply some of the mm -hmm. same ideas and the same models. You know, it's like, you know, why why do we necessarily have to install a, a, a module at development time? Why can't we, you know, when we need a piece of functionality, go out and find it, um, you know, and apply it? Ooh, right. I, I've been working on that too. You know, and that's uh, you know, and I, and I, I know you have. Uh, you know, so, and, and, you know, I know there's there's work that, that that's that's go, going in that direction. Just that itself is also going to be so very transformative uh, to the way people write write code. So, mm -hmm. how much of this problem do we tackle now, mm -hmm. <laughs> or do we, or mm -hmm. do we mm -hmm. do we have to spread it out over time for people to uh, actually be able to start using it? So, I think that the the past is a pretty good guide here. Um, if you look back at the technologies that we have adapted to. Um, in, in the technology industry. Like if you look at the ways in which we build applications and the things that we have adopted, um, they are leading indicators of a lot of the larger user changes. Not, not every user change, right? Like it doesn't predict the iPhone, um, but it does predict like Slack and messaging, right? Like we were, I was using IRC in, in the 90s to, to be a part of online communities, right? Um, you know, bulletin board systems before that. Um, we have all of these things that like nerds and people that work on technology had adopted. If you look at um, the early work on um, online collaboration, which is now literally the way that everyone works, especially during COVID, it kind of accelerated this. But even before COVID, like the, the direction that everything was going in is that the work that you are paid to do as a person is becoming highly collaborative and you're using online tools for that. 
we've been doing that in open source for a very long time. We've been improving those tools over time. And so, and, and GitHub is a really good guide here. Um, GitHub really is a, is a leading indicator of all of this. If you, Clay Shirky did a lot of the early work on kind of um, peer-to-peer uh, production networks and open source was like his guide for how to think about that and open source kind of leading into Wikipedia. Um, th- this is all, you know, really early stuff. This is like, you know, 20, early 2010s. Um, and so I think that like our first targets really should be ourselves and these early development communities. And we shouldn't focus too much on user facing applications and kind of jump the gun on that because um, we'll get much tighter feedback cycles if we focus on ourselves and on other developers. And I think that there are, we are feeling this pain earlier um, than other people are. Um, like we as open source developers feel the pain of having to rely on centralized solutions more than big companies do and more that users who don't really care about where the data lives really see as well. Um, so I think that like thinking about this from the point of view of like, okay, how do I decentralize just our workflow or how do I give us better tools that can show value? Um, like there's a lot of value locked up in these primitives just themselves. So how do you like get developers kind of accustomed to them? Um, so like something that I've been working on is um, the ESM transition. And we can talk about how bad this is going to be if you want. Um, but whoo, oh boy. Um, so, okay. So, so ESM, um, it's a really big change. It's a really big breaking change. Um, I think that people got, people are a little bit too accustomed to the way that we build web applications right now. Um, And the way that we build applications right now is less than 10 years old. Um, This whole like, you know, you have a bundler and you have um, a framework that is really tied into that bundler. And the, you know, you have um, this value network of uh, like NPM modules to pull stuff in. And that is like disconnected from the build and then deployment environment of the application. That's all very, very new. Um, if you go back before that, the, the big thing in web development, the big thing that happened was jQuery, which was like a rejection of that, right? jQuery is a script that you include in the header of your website. And that was like how you included things just on the internet. You, you, you leveraged the web network. Um, but at a certain point, just we had too many dependencies to really rely on that. Um, and it wasn't a great kind of publishing model. And so what we ended up doing was kind of grafting the web development experience onto the NPM and, and Node.js ecosystem. And then that meant um, funneling everything into these bundlers. And so bundlers have serious performance issues that, that, are, that are not like, oh, the bundler is slow to run, but literally the, the fastest that your website can ever load okay. on r- updating the website is the full cost of the entire bundle. That's, um, that's not uh, going to work. Like that's, that's, I'm, I'm just saying right now, like that's not an application model that we know will work in the future because we know that people are going to write more code yeah. in the future. We know that applications are going to get more advanced in the future. And the, the web platform has done a tremendous job of keeping up with needs and shedding the need for a lot of this ecosystem, a lot of the need for these modules. But we're not going to move to a model in which you use less yeah. of other people's code or you pull in less dependencies, we need to move to a model in which like those dependencies, yes, are becoming less necessary over time, but where we can optimize the performance, the load performance um, and deduplicate pulling in stuff that we've gotten in the past. Yeah, right? I think I think anybody that's, you know, just seen how 
much more complex what Philip has become just from even 10 years ago or, you know, or even five years ago. Right. You know, I understand. It's, you know, it's like we're only going to be adding more code. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. only going to get more complex. And you're absolutely yeah. right. E ESM just it completely changes the model. Uh, and and uh, this is a large part of the difficulty why it's been so hard getting it into Node because it's like how much of a disruption do we want to bring yeah. in? Um, we really didn't want to have a Python two Python three situation, right? Um, where it was just such such a difference. Yeah, yeah. But but I mean, one one thing that I should say though is that I, something that's kind of overlooked is that because the way that we build applications is through bundlers. We overlook the fact that we have this thing called universal JavaScript in before ESM. Yeah. Um, and, and even though people think that they're using ESM because they're using import statements that then get changed by the compiler, yeah. um, like they think that they have ESM and they have universal JavaScript where like they, they, you know, you can write code and have it run in node and have it run in websites as one kind of thing. And ESM is different enough from CommonJS and changes the representations that you need to make when you're translating between these two parties enough that Node couldn't implement it cross compatibility both directions. So it could bring CJS into ESM, but it can't bring ESM to CJS. And you can't get access to all of the new features and this new potential way of building web applications that newer tools like Snowpack are, are allowing you to do um, unless you write things in ESM. And so what we have yeah. to figure out now is, okay, how do I write ESM and then have that be universal JavaScript that can run everywhere? And that's actually going to take a compile step. It's going to before publishing. So you're going to have to compile out a common JS version of your package. Um, and that's something that like no developers have never had to do and that we haven't had to think about as part of this kind of universal JavaScript story. But I've worked on some tools for that already. I have a new one coming out. Uh, we're, right now I'm just solving this build problem, right? Like I, I just, like all I want to do is I want to write my little libraries and I want them to work everywhere. <laughs> that's all I want. <laughs> and that's like, if I'm doing that with ESM right now, I, I like that doesn't work. Um, so right now I'm just writing a little, little build tool that you can use to write pure ESM and then it will compile out a target that you can then publish to NPM and it'll just work everywhere. Nice. But the, the sort of the layer in between here that I'm working on that will be like a step on top of this is that um, what I really want to do is, is use that as a way into a new form of package management. So it'll still work and you can still publish it to NPM. But I want you to be able to publish that package in its native kind of format to a different kind of packaging system that thinks about packages as a data structure. So instead of packages being like this, um, this the way that NPM works is that you have this config file, the package.json file, um, and then you have a bunch of other files like in a tarball. And the only way to reason about what's going on here is to literally parse the package.json. And then if it's common JS, you actually have to parse the files and execute them. <laughs> uh, because like, it's very hard to figure out what is happening in common JS without um, executing like really complex algorithms for resolution. Whereas with ESM, that, that's not the case. With ESM, um, you can just parse the AST and figure out everything that's going on, which is really nice. Um, but I want the, the, 
this whole package, what, like what I do with your code before I turn it into this thing that then works in NPM. That logic should be captured in a data structure and then that published as its own entity. And then we can now do things in package management with interlinking and dependency management that we couldn't do in the NPM model. We can literally hash link, statically link between different packages. And that means that in the browser, we can start to do incredible performance optimizations. So oh, yeah. if you have a package that is, a, that is literally a hash link graph, right? Of all the files that you're ever gonna pull. The moment that you request this package and you say, I, and you give me no E tag, I can HTTP push you every file that you're gonna have. So it's literally one request and then I, just like a bundle, but it's separate web requests, I can HTTP push you everything you ever needed. If you then come back later and you say, oh, here's my E tag for the old version. I can compare that against the hash for the new version of the package, and I can figure out exactly all the files that changed. So I can now, like at least prefetch, if not just push you, all the files that changed. Right, and um, only the files that changed. Yeah. And only the files that changed. Yes. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you can do with these like hashlink data structures that I've been working on. So now we can like take our actual code and package it up. Um, and, and we have this really cool browser flow, but you can take it a step further. So this is like very experimental. Like I'm just kind of poking around at this, but Dino has some really nice security features. You can really lock it down. And some of these are making their way into node now as well. And so we're getting much better at kind of sandboxing stuff. Um, and, uh, actually this guy that I work with, Rockley, um, he figured out a really, really great, um, sandboxing model in iframes where you, you actually can kind of safely load JavaScript code into an iframe and give it access to nothing and, and just talk to it over a, a predetermined kind of communication channel. So we have all these kind of sandbox environments for JavaScript. I started to think about, okay, what if I take a function, a JavaScript function as an ESM module and I put it into this packaging format. So now I have a hash for the package and every one of its dependencies. So I have the whole graph of information that you're gonna to need to ever execute it. So now I have a hash that I can pass off and say, hey, now this is, just, this is just the address for this function. So I can have a serverless environment that is just dynamically loading any function that I ever need by its hash. Um, and I can start like literally now I have a static linking mechanism in serverless environments and in uh, d distributed computing that is just hash-based. Um, I can take that same hash, and if that function conforms to a standard that we say this is what HTTP functions should look like, then it could also work as a service worker. And it's just the same code running as a service worker running as a serverless function. Um, you know, if we say, you know what, um, here's how to pass options to it, like a command line, like command line flags, and you reconcile that with what an HTTP function used to look like, you can say, oh, now we have a registry of names and hashes for every command line application that, that's ever existed in this registry. You can start to do really, really cool stuff. Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. you, can even, you can even do stuff like you can start uh, parsing all the files and creating like a shadow graph of all the files and parse the files into AST and then turn the AST into a hash link graph. And then you can literally look across the entire ecosystem and go, what are the, what code are most people running? <laughs> like how often do I see each of these hashes? Right. It, it, you know, it just comes to mind. You know, a few other really interesting things. Once you start parsing it into AST, you could also do translations between languages you know, fairly easily. So you know, run yeah. it as JavaScript in one environment, WASM in another environment, Rust in another. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there, there's really, yeah, you're right. There's really yep. interesting things you could potentially yeah. do. Uh, on, yeah. on that note, 
on, on that note, you know, you know, um, you know, we are we, we we are running up to the end of the time. This has been absolutely absolutely phenomenal conversation. And you're talking. I know we can you know we could probably go on for another hour at least. Um, uh, you know what we might do? You know, invite you back for another uh, uh, for for another episode, and we can just kind of keep you know keep hammering through for, for, for on this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and but for now, I think we're going to go ahead uh, and, and end here. Just as a reminder to listeners, um, you know, uh, you can find Open Hive JS on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Uh, you can find other players. You know, um, go to Anchor.fm/OpenHiveJS. You can find other places to listen to us. Uh, you know, want to thank Michael for, for for joining us, and thank you all for uh, uh, listening. Great. This has been another episode of OpenHive.js, the podcast for all things JavaScript from Nearphone. Be sure to subscribe to OpenHive.js on your favorite podcast player. Join us next time for more insights and opinions from the open source and JavaScript communities. Until then, I am Matteo Collina. Thanks for listening.